You're listening to another episode of Lords of Limited with your hosts Ben Werney and Ethan Sachs. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Lords of Limited. My name is Ben Warney, and joining me on the line is 18th place finisher in the MTGO Super Qualifier, Ethan Sachs. Ethan, how was the MTGO Super Qualifier? It was fun. I mean, it was very similar to a day one of a GP. It's nine rounds of sealed, and then if you're in the top eight, then you have to draft and, and do three rounds. I did not have to do that. So I played in actually two of them. There's basically with the schedule they have now, there's really only two that are, you know, convenient for my schedule as an East Coaster. There's the Wednesday at three and the Friday at 10 a.m. So I did Wednesday at three, went seven, two with a pretty sweet four color brew. I also had a backup deck that was uh, black, white that I sided into a couple times. And then I also played on Friday yesterday and promptly went O2 drop. So didn't quite, uh, quite run it back but it was really fun and i actually recorded the whole thing for our youtube channel so there's four and a half hours of sealed goodness there for you at youtube.com slash lords of limited for folks who want to check that out how was your week of magic my friend my week was great part of my week of magic was watching you a couple rounds on the discord in the super qualifier and i can assure you if you go to watch that video you will see some haymakers getting thrown around in games of magic who boy did you have some bombs and did your opponents have some bombs yeah i beat dream trawler in three games i beat qr best the sea god heliod clothis nylea like this format is wild i will not be sad to see it go (laughs) (laughs) yeah so on other news on my end i got my mtg set up all my streaming set up all decked out got some umbrella lights got a green screen for that streaming arena life so yeah stream leveled up and we ran our lords of limited fnm on friday night which was an absolute blast yeah and honestly went off without a hitch like save for a couple people being like a few minutes late to the queues firing like it was pretty smooth sailing for our uh, our Lords of Limited draft pods into arena matches. Uh, and this was all available through our Discord. We fired six draft pods, so 48 people got to play FNM on Friday, and it was really fun. Yeah, it was an absolute blast. So we need to thank some people as part of making this happen. First and foremost is Draken, who is sort of our Discord technology guru mm-hmm. and does everything they do, volunteer, and really, really, really appreciate everything they do for us. And we also want to shout out the folks who ran the pod. In addition to me and Ben, we got to thank DC Sports, Draken, Sirkovitz, and Zachary for sort of taking each of those draft pods from start to finish. And we got to shout out those pod winners. Pod one was dominated by yours truly. My deck was busted in half. So some sick brags here. I had Heliod, Archon of Sun's Grace. I had... You had Ox and Phoenix. I had Ox, Phoenix. I had... done done we're done it was it was absurd (laughs) pod two shout out to mort pod three abrupt dk pod four looster booster pod five desert yeti and pod six fatty chopper came in first on breakers so they had someone drop after a round one win due to some time constraints and so four of them actually ended up with two wins but fatty chopper edged it out on breakers so congrats to them so 
because this ran so smoothly, we're going to keep doing this and we're going to, you know, this was sort of East Coast friendly, the one that we ran on Friday, but I think we're going to try and do more, see what the interest is for some uh, Euro friendly drafts, some West Coast friendly drafts. I think it's fairly easy to set up. Uh, I think it can sort of be self-sustaining without you or I having to to be in charge of them. And for folks who are, maybe you're not in the Discord, you're, you're not able to support the show that way, but you're interested in, in trying to do this with your friend group. Again, check out our YouTube channel. Ben made a sort of how-to for running your own Arena Draft pod from using this third-party website uh, to importing decks to Arena for direct challenges. Ben made a video for that on our YouTube channel, so you can check that out, and you can fire your own FNMs. Yeah, it was very easy to set up. So all you need is you, seven other people. You Actually, that's the nice thing about it. If you've only got like three other friends that draft, you could fire it up with you and four bots, and then you could still jam the drafts against each other between you and your friends on Arena. Yeah, it's a really, really good thing. I was sort of saying like, I wish we had started doing this sooner, but you know, 40 card direct challenges haven't been available that long. So we haven't missed the boat that much. We have another exciting piece of housekeeping to take care of here on Lords of Limited. So this past week, we've been running our giveaway where you guys have a chance to enter by leaving us a review on iTunes. Thank you so, so, so much to everyone that took the time to leave us a rating and review on iTunes. We really, really, really appreciate it. Cannot say thank you enough. Some of the things that people said on there were just absolutely incredible. So we compiled all of those people into a spreadsheet, assigned everyone a number, and did a random number generator to give us our winner, who is I Love Atar 777 Congratulations very much to them. So that's I-L-U-V-A-T-A-R-777. So if you can reach out to us, at the Lords of Limited gmail.com address, and we can hook you up with your choice of 100 ticks or 20,000 gems on Magic Arena. And again, thank you very much for leaving us a review. So they said, Lords of Limited always gives great format-specific MTG draft content. Ethan and Ben have great chemistry, excellent pod. And again, there were so, so, so many kind words left on iTunes. So thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone that took the time to do that. Yes, cannot say thank you enough to those folks and to the folks who continue to support our show via our Patreon page. Patreon.com slash Lords of Limited, where you can go to give back to the show if you so choose. You get perks like access to the Discord and all of these uh, bonus FNM co-op draft things that we've got going on to keep people connected during this time of self-quarantining, self-isolating. Um, we want to make sure that we shout out our new patrons each and every week that they join. So this week, we're welcoming to the fold Wimout, Dan, Andrew, Zachary, Dean, Thomas, Doug, Christian, Peter, Stephen, Michael, Circles and Sticks, Uday, Ipsissimus, Derek, Fun Baba, Kurt, Bud, Jesse, and Vin. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We really appreciate your support. Thank you so much to all those people who pledged to join the Discord and the Patreon, and props to you for not tripping over any of those names. There were some doozies in there. Ben, I'm a professional. What can I say? Professional talker. Well, speaking of professionals, we have a really awesome guest for you folks here today. We are going to be welcoming Sam Black on to talk all things limited, brewing, deck building, drafting decks, not cards. It was a fantastic conversation, and we hope you enjoy it. All right. Well, we are very excited to welcome to the show a man who probably needs no introduction to a lot of our uh, listeners, but he is one of the hosts of the podcast Pro Points. He is a writer for Star City Games. He has a lot of professional magic credits to his name, three PT Top 8s, 16 GP Top 8s, Top 4 Worlds. We're very excited to welcome Sam Black to the show. Sam, thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me. So uh, I guess to springboard all of our discussions here, as we normally do when it's just me and Ben, 
And even though Theros is on the outs a little bit, I thought we'd dive into a Theros roundtable that comes to us from one of the folks who top-aided the super qualifier on Wednesday. Uh, their name is Lace Base on Twitch. They shared this uh, draft log with me on Twitter, uh, a number of other people as well, and I asked them if uh, we could use it because I think it's a really interesting one in terms of looking at cards in in the context of a set, which I think is going to be part of our discussion later on in the episode. So Sam and Ben, are you ready to take a seat at the roundtable? Absolutely. Sure. All right. So pack one, pick one, you see the following cards as options. The commons are pretty weak sauce. Among them, I'd say Nylea's Forerunner and Mogus's Favor, probably the the standout of the bunch, and that probably lets you know how, how weak they are. Moving on to the uncommons, I'd say the only one to mention is Commanding Presence. The three and a white aura gives the creature plus two, plus two in first strike, and whenever it deals combat damage to a player, you make a one-one soldier. And our rare is Perforos's Intervention, which is X and red for a sorcery. You choose one, you either make an X1 red elemental creature token with Trample and Haste, and you sack it at the beginning of the next end step, or it deals twice X damage to target creature or planeswalker. Sam, what do you like out of this pack? Uh, the rare. I don't really think any of the other cards are particularly justifiable. Maybe the commanding presence, but it would be a stretch. Yeah, I think that's fair. Ben, any thoughts here? Hashtag I'm with Sam. All right, sounds good. So moving on, Perforce's intervention in our pile and Lace Base as well chose this card. Pack one, pick two. Much more exciting pack here. There is a Witness of Tomorrow and Vexingal in blue. We've got Omen of the Forge and Iroas's Blessing as a couple of red commons. And Iroas's Blessing, one of our top commons in the set. Looking at the uncommons, there's a Farika Spawn. That's uh, three and a black for the three, four with Escape five and a black, Exile three. And when it comes back, it's a five, six and your opponent sacks a creature. And uh, a card that I really like, one of the only build arounds in the set, really. Enigmatic Incarnation is the rare. That's the two green blue enchantment. At the beginning of your end step, you can sack an enchantment. If you do, you turn it into a creature card with a CMC plus one of that enchantment from your library. Sam, what do you think about this pack? Uh, I think that Given that we already have a red card, going straight into three colors with the rare wouldn't be where I'd want to start. So if there's a similar power level option somewhere else, I'd be inclined to do that. Uh, the best card in our colors, Saros's Blessing, which is a solid baseline to beat. We would need to have something that's like appreciably better to move into a second color. But I do think Farika's Spawn is probably the best card if this were like pack one, pick one, and enough better than Iris's Blessing that I'd be inclined to take it over Iris's Blessing. And I think that in almost all cases, like early in a draft, I'm going to prefer it to Enigmatic Incarnation. And certainly starting with the red card pushes me further in that direction. Do you have Farika's Spawn as the best uncommon in the set? By a very wide margin. Really? Okay. Yeah. We, we have it as, as the best as well, but I think I think both of us have been gotten by Elspeth's Nightmare enough that it's it's a clear but close second to the spawn. But yeah, spawn is busted. Ben, can I get a hashtag I'm with Sam? Yeah, every everything he said and more. Great. So uh, we're all two for two, lay space included. And now is where I think it gets a little interesting. Pack one, pick three. Uh, cards in our quote-unquote colors at common. There's a Thrill of Possibility and a Nyxborn Marauder for the red and black cards. Uh, Elysian Caryatid, perhaps the best of the bunch of the other commons. And then only two uncommons left, so uncommon and a rare missing. There's Triumph of Annex, which is red. That's the, the two in a red saga. I think probably doesn't quite have a great home in the format. So the first three chapters, you give plus X plus O to a creature and it gets trampled, where X is the number of uh, counters on the Triumph of Annex. And then the fourth chapter, chapter lets you have one of your creatures fight an opponent's creature. 
And then Binding of the Titans, the uh, one in a green saga, you mill three, you exile two cards, and then you get to return a creature or land card from your graveyard to your hand. So as a follow-up to Perforos' Intervention and Farika's Spawn, where do you land on this pack, Sam? So I would take Thrill of Possibility. I think that I understand taking Binding of the Titans, or one could, I suppose, technically make a case for the Triumph of Annex. But I think that taking Binding of the Titans over Thrill would indicate either a preference for green-black over red-black, or a preference for having a really high degree of flexibility early in a draft, which may or may not accompany another possible preference that you could have that would lead you to this pick being a general openness to splashing. Given that I think I prefer two-color decks, I think Thrill of Possibility plays really well in a red-black Farika spawn deck. I think that like the start prefers intervention uh, Farika spawn Thrill of Possibility gives me a pretty clear path and just like three cards that are going to play well together. And I honestly think the power level gap between Binding of the Titans and Thrill of Possibility is just low enough that I wouldn't want to move into another color to take Binding. Triumph of Annex would represent a pretty strong preference for being aggressive specifically, which I definitely don't have. So I, I think Thrill of Possibility is just like leaves us the most open and plays well with what we have and just doesn't involve moving into another color here where I don't think we need to. So to dig a little deeper here, would you have at the start of the format been happy third picking Thrill of Possibility? Would you have thought that that was a, a card you'd be okay to take in, in this early in a pack? Or is this a card that has gone up in your estimation as the format has progressed? Uh, yeah, it definitely is not a card that would have been on my radar early in the format. And honestly, a lot of my moving up on how aggressively I would take Thrill is based on following the Twitter account limited underscore Opa and seeing that a huge percentage of 3ODX posted on that account have multiple Thrill possibilities. And it just makes a good amount of sense given how strong I think escape is, especially when we have a freak of spawn, uh, thrill of possibilities plays really, really well with escape and spawn, especially. I would also thrill a possibility here. I have an interesting question for Sam. So in, in the context of Theros, which do you think is higher power level? Like if, if you pack one, pick one, you were choosing between thrill or binding of the Titans. Like I said, I think they're pretty close. My previous assumptions have been that binding is stronger, but I would say that I'm very low confidence there, which is why I'm easily just taking the in color card at this point. Yeah, that's where I was at. I thought Binding of the Titans was great at the start of the format. And now I feel like it's basically just a green black gold card. I don't really like it in any of the other green color pairs. Whereas Thrill, I feel like is going to go in any red deck. And we've already got Freak of Spawn that it's really good with. So yeah, I, I like taking Thrill here. Hold on, I, I agree with you about Binding, but on Thrill, I, at least personally, I've been prioritizing Thrill a lot more heavily in red, black, and red, blue, rather than red, green, and red, white, where I'm generally trying to be a little more aggressive. And I don't want to spend two mana on turn two to play Thrill. I'd rather play a two drop, but that's fine. Obviously, you can do that in any color and just play Thrill later as a card draw spell, where, you know, in general, you want to like empty your hand and then load up with card draw. But when you're trying to like curve out and be aggressive, the just like kind of having a a card in your hand that can't contribute to that, I think the cost is like appreciably higher in those archetypes. And I was wondering if this was something you're kind of glossing over, if you really do like it in every archetype or where your thoughts are on that. No, that's fair. I, I guess my feeling is a throw provides a lot of flexibility. If you don't get a streamlined deck, it feels like a good sort of, I don't know, we talked about it 
when we were talking about it in the context of the whatever the multicolor deck that I think Opa sort of you know threw out to the Twitterverse early on in the format. Um, but Thrill provides. Uh, a lot of flexibility throughout the draft if you aren't presented with a streamlined deck. But I definitely agree. If I've got a good red-green beatdown deck or a good red-white beatdown deck, a two-mana filtering card is not where I want to be. Yeah, for me, it's red-blue, red-black, or red-multicolored. Sure. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. So pack one, pick four, I think we're all probably going to land on the same card again. In terms of the commons that we've got uh, at the top of the heap, there's another thrill of possibility. There's a thirst for meaning. There's a pious wayfarer. If we wanted to dip into some aggro red action, those are the three cards that jump out to me. The only uncommon left, no rare left. The only uncommon left is Siona, Captain of the Pileas, pretty low in the gold uncommon rankings. And uh, and I think not where we want to be with red and black cards in our pile so far. So uh we just grabbing a second thrill of possibility here, Sam? Assuming that I had taken the previous thrill of possibility, yes, I'm taking another thrill here. If I'd taken the Binding of Titans, I'm in a much weirder spot. And from there, I could see taking any of Thrill, Thirst, or even Skull of Grove Dancer, depending on how I expect the rest of my draft to go based on the rest of my preferences. I, I don't know, like what picks I can expect I would be making if I were the sort of person to take binding second to know well enough, like if I see card X and card Y, which one I would take in that hypothetical to know if I should be taking Skull of Grove Dancer as informed by the rest of my flowchart. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. So here we've got uh, Lay Space landing on Thirst for Meaning, and I think the rest of us landing on the second Thrill of Possibility. So pack one, pick five, we've got uh, an Underworld Ragehound in our colors here at Common. Actually, probably the two best cards in the pack are red, either Underworld Ragehound or at Uncommon Dream Shaper Shaman. That's the five and a red, five, four enchantment creature that lets you at the end of your turn pay two and a red to sack something, sack a non-land permanent of yours to then flip cards from the top of your library until you reveal a non-land permanent and get to put that into play. Sam, uh, I assume those are the two cards that, that would jump out to you. And, and if not, let me know. But among those two, which do you like better? Yeah, it is those two. Early in the format, I was very high on Underworld Ragehound. I think I've moved down a little bit, but I actually think that if I'm starting with you know the start that we have with two Thrill of Possibilities, I would prefer the Underworld Ragehound to the Dream Shaper Shaman. Largely because I'm pretty I'm set up well to use escape cards, obviously, and I'm also set up pretty well to discard situational escape cards so that I don't have to play the front side of them and to uh, discard extra lands so that I'm not necessarily going to uh, hit six lands on six. So all of that pushes me toward an inclination to take the Rage Hound over the Dream Shaper Shaman. Also, given uh, the first four cards that I have, the way that I'm going to approach this kind, like a red-black deck from this starting point, is I'm going to prioritize removal really heavily because I think that maximizes escape and Freakus spawn. And I think that Underworld Rage Hound plays really well in specifically removal-heavy red-black decks above how well it plays in any other archetype. Is there any thought to valuing Underworld Ragehound less because you have such a good escape card in Freak of Spawn that you don't want them competing for the same resources? Because Spawn's probably, no matter what happens, Spawn is a pretty high percentage to make your deck right now, right? Yes, absolutely. And I do think that additional escape cards have diminishing returns. But I also think that in Red Black, I believe Underworld Ragehound is the common that I'm most interested in escaping. And 
when I have uh, Freakus spawn, I'm going to want to draft to enable escape pretty highly to maximize my chances of finding and abusing the Freakus spawn. And that means that I'm going to want another escape card or two to uh, be able to take advantage of all the cards that I have that are enabling and fueling escape when Freakus spawn happens to be in the bottom half of my library. When you've got a deck like this, that's starting out with a couple thrills, like if you're going to be filling your graveyard at a fairly reasonable rate, do you have a sweet spot of the number of escape cards that you would want? Or do you just feel like the more the merrier? No, I mean, like, you know, my target is ballpark three. Like after I have three that I'm happy with, I'm going to like significantly decrease my prioritization to future escape cards. Makes sense. I think in this pick, I would have been on Dream Shaper Shaman. I'm a little lower on Rage Hound in a vacuum. And I think red with moving up the red omen in my pick order a lot, Dream Shaper Shaman has has been very good in red decks for me and I think is really good if we're in the thrill multicolored deck. So I like picking that up here and knowing I've got a good top end in like a red based multicolored deck to sacrifice omens and other things like that that I might have used for early defense. Well, it just sounds like you and Sam, I think, are, are thinking about the same picks in the context of different decks, right? I think Ben's leaning towards like, I've got two thrills so I can mess around with my mana. And Sam sounds like he's thinking about, I'm going to be a red black removal heavy deck and Rage Hound's going to fit better there. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's reasonable to say like, okay, well, I saw a spawn, but I haven't seen any other good black cards. And honestly, the red cards I've seen aren't great. I don't know that my like colors are open. I could easily end up pivoting. And I just want to position myself with like the strongest cards to end up wherever and uh, take the Dream Shaper Shaman because it's a stronger card than the Rage Hand. I think that makes perfect sense and is a totally reasonable way to approach like this pick and thoughts on the draft at this point. Sweet. So Lace Base grabbed that. We'll go one one pick deeper here. Uh, pack one, pick six. We've got some good options. The only red card in the pack is Scophos War Leader at common. That's the five mana four five. Um, other commons of note, I guess Nylea's Forerunner, Return to Nature, if we uh, are thinking back to the Binding of the Titans that Lacebase picked up. And then two sagas at Uncommon, The Birth of Miletus in white and Metamized Prophecy in blue. So are we just sticking to red here or is there anything that feel like there's anything that's packing a bit more of a punch here for you to dip into a second color or a third color? So for me, I think if I'd taken the Rage Hound, I'm definitely taking the War Leader. If I'd taken the Dream Shaper Shaman, I could understand taking either Prophecy. And I'm currently mulling over the possibility of taking Birth of Miletus with a plan of ending up Mardu Control, which I can't say is an archetype I've ever drafted before, (laughs) but I have some ideas about how it might go, and I think it would be interesting. So if I were just like, you know, drafting at this point, I'm not going to be drafting this set at like a Grand Prix or something. So I'd probably just say like, all right, what does this deck look like and take the Birth of Miletus? I love that so much, getting the brew going. I think that's a that's a great place, I think, to just springboard into your general approach to limited. Like you're pretty well known in the limited community for, you know, drafting off the beaten path decks or kind of having your own own approach to a format. Like for example, this this idea of taking Birth of Miletus here and drafting a Mardu control deck, does that stuff just hit you in the moment and then you try it out? Yes, for the most part. So I spend a lot of time analyzing the format in a big picture way and thinking about all the things that are possible and like developing a like good understanding of what cards exist and what different ways there are to use them, which allows me to just in the moment go like, oh, I have like red filtering and uh, 
a source of like late game card advantage slash bomb type finisher. It's not like bomb power level, but it's bomb impact on a game, if that makes sense in Dream Shaper Shaman. And so like if I take the birth here, I know, okay, well, this Dream Shaper Shaman is going to want me to have like omens and tokens and stuff. And the red and white omens both work well in playing a defensive game. I have the two thrills that are going to make it pretty easy to splash Farika's spawn. So between spawn and Dream Shaper Shaman, I have like good grinding and good late game. There's a lot of removal in red and white. The stuff that I'm doing to play well with Dream Shaper Shaman would play well with Final Flare. And so I can just like plan to take removal and value it in the form of just like random objects, like extra permanent in play from omens or extra cards in graveyard from stuff like thrill, or maybe, you know, if I end up with more black and then birth of Miletus is just like plays really well with thrill possibilities because it just like generates more random cards and buys time and like, if I don't want the extra planes, I can discard that. So that's kind of like what I'd be looking to do if I took that card there. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. So we've had a, a number of guests on uh, at the pro level before that I think have a much different approach to spoiler season to getting cards in their hands for the first time than Ben and I do because Ben and I I think you know are a bunch of tryhards and really like dive into spoiler season and like I don't know we're also probably just not as as talented as a lot of folks that we've had the privilege to talk to so I'm wondering how you approach spoiler season do you follow cards coming out for limited or are you the type of person that just the first time you're cracking open packs for the draft is the first time you're reading the cards or are you somewhere in between there? I'm somewhere in between. I follow spoiler season really closely. I, you know, I need, I need to watch it for uh, my content. I need to be aware of like what rares and constructed cards are coming out to have things to write about. And just as a player, I'm always interested in seeing all the new stuff. And I don't just like only look at rares or gloss over commons. I'll like basically do a full read through of the set every day. So, you know, obviously like once I just like sight recognize a card and know exactly what it is, I don't read it again, but I do just like basically just review the entire set every day so that I have like a complete understanding of like, I know all the cards the first time I'm playing, but I guess it varies just depending on what's going on and the handful of days between getting the full information and playing my first draft, how much deep analysis I've done. I guess most of the time I will not historically have gone really deep on analysis before I first play because I like to physically have cards to lay out and move around on a table and like visually process. I don't really like working with spreadsheets and stuff. So it's just a lot easier for me to do it that way. And are you then gathering information from a play group when you're first drafting? Are you prioritizing getting your hands on as many different archetypes in as little time as possible? Or are you just trying to to see what wins? I like to... Explore, obviously. Madison, where I live, is very good at getting... uh, We just have a lot of like dedicated limited players. And so every pre-release will have somewhere in the 16 to 32 people kind of just like drafting the set all day. And so I watch a lot of matches, play a lot of matches, talk to a lot of people like about draft specifically at the pre-release. And that helps to just like springboard into having a lot of ideas of like what people 
are drawn to and can do with the set and just hear from people what they've had success with and what they haven't and stuff like that. And then from there, usually I'll get a handful of people at the end of the weekend together to just like go through what we think from that first weekend of playing the top commons are and like what archetypes we had success with and uh, sometimes go a little deeper um, into how we build various archetypes, uncommon rankings, etc. So Madison's sort of been known for quite a while as a hotbed of limited play and limited testing. What's it like living there? And is that where you learned to play MTG at? No, I, I grew up in the Chicago area. So about two hours from here. And I started playing Magic when I was like 11. So I that's where I learned. I moved to Madison kind of during, but mostly after college. And so you were already a well-established player at that point. Yeah. I mean, I, I played like I had played a lot. I played a lot of PTQs. I had played a lot on Magic Online. I definitely had like my play style down and everything. But it like I did not play in my first pro tour until after I'd been in Madison for a while, for example. So it just depends on what you, you mean exactly when you say established. I was established as a player, but not as a pro. And so when you do those things, it sounds like you rank commons. What are your feelings on common rankings and using them and and pick orders and things like that? I take them very lightly. I think that they're good for informing your first couple picks in a draft and generally like reading signals. So I like to know what other people are thinking. But I think that like draft decks, not cards, once I have like any direction, I'm going to view things through the lens of like how I imagine my deck looking ultimately rather than just like flat power level ranking of the cards, right? Like in this draft, things were varying based on context as early as pick three and then moving into varying by context within a single color by pick five. So like the way that I prefer to draft at least uh, involves a lot of flexibility about your uh, assessment of the utility of cards based on context, of not only you know what you have but more importantly like what you're targeting and expecting which is why you know i mentioned like with the uh potentially taking grove dancer pick three uh or whatever that a lot of it's just or pick four rather i wouldn't have taken grove dancer over binding the titans but having binding the titans the consideration to take grove dancer there just like this idea that if i'm advising someone else on a single pick but i know that they're going to be like driving the ship from there there are spots where it's like well i would take this but that's because i have i know that i have like these other preferences if you have a different set of other preferences that pick could be wrong for you basically i have a lot of awareness of like when a pick can be right for a certain set of other reasonable preferences in the format versus when a pick is just always right no matter what i think that no matter how you're viewing stuff taking a card other than freakus spawn Pack one, pick two in this draft is going to lead to winning less. I could understand I have a super strong preference for red and a super strong preference against black. I'm going to take Iris's Blessing over Farouk's Spawn. That's like almost defensible for a certain extremely strong set of preferences, but I do think it's going to cost you in the long run to have preferences that extreme. But there are other places where it's just like, like if Iris's Blessing weren't in this pack and instead it were taking like Omen of the Forge over Farouk's Spawn, now we're getting into like, look, this is just wrong. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And so when you're talking about that idea of having a picture in your head of your deck so that that's coming as early as maybe like pick five pick six for you no it's coming as early as pick one or two it's just a question of how flexible that 
uh, picture is. Right. And then you're always adjusting based on the other pics that you see, like the, the picture keeps getting updated or shifted what you're drawing maybe to continue with the metaphor. Yeah. If you think of it as just like a, you know, branching tree of possibilities, I'm aware of like all the different branches that exist moving forward. And then as I get more pics, I start like focusing on like certain specific branches, but then you know, if I get thrown a curveball, like this pack that doesn't have anything I'm excited about, and maybe I want to take this birth of Miletus and explore something that I certainly didn't have explicitly in mind one pick earlier, though I did, you know, if I had taken the Dream Shaper Shaman over the Rage Hound, it would have been because I wanted to stay open to the possibility of shifting colors. I don't know which color that's going to be or what kind of deck it's going to be too, but I know that I'm just like trying to stay open about my colors and about how I'm using these cards. Then I see this birth of Miletus and now it's like, okay, well, this Certainly wasn't in the possibility space I'd been focusing on, but as I like moved up this tree, I uncovered this new side branch that I can explore. And then, you know, I take the birth of Miletus and now I'm not on that branch. That branch is just in my possibility space. This idea of drafting decks, not cards, I think for me was introduced with drafting cube and then taking that skill set that I developed and applying it to regular limited formats. But I think for perhaps a lot of our listeners or for folks who don't get to get in as many reps as say the three of us do with a limited format, that that is tough to wrap your heads around or tough to take the leap of like, oh, I see how Dream Shaper Shaman now impacts my future picks to want to take omens or want to take things like sagas or Birth of Miletus in particular, because it does generate a two for one with the planes in my hand that I can pitch to the thrills and how your brain is working to say like, how do all of these cards work together rather than what's the individual power level of these cards in a vacuum? Is that a skill that you had to develop or is that something that sort of felt innate for you uh, as you explored limited? No, I mean, I, I definitely think that like, that's the kind of thing you have to develop. I mean, part of it is just like, when you're first getting into it, it's hard to even keep all of the cards that you have drafted in your head at the same time. And then just like, as you get more familiarity, uh, it gets like easier to just like, I don't know, slot into your framework about, I don't know, whatever it is that lets you like build a better infrastructure for keeping track of that stuff. And, you know, knowing the format well enough to just like figuring out what this deck would look like involves knowing, okay, are there, is there enough support for this kind of strategy at common that I can expect to like realistically see enough cards that I'm going to want to put in my deck and to be able to just like, you know, I didn't like literally count through okay these five white commons would be good these six red commons would be good the commons that i'm looking for have like this level level of desirability for other players so i can expect to see this many of them at this point in the draft like i didn't you know do that whole thought process i was just like intuitively like yeah there are enough white and red commons that kind of like support a controlling stance that i couldn't see how i would be able to make this work but that was really just like off the cuff, like, yeah, this works. Uh, when I saw the birth of Miletus here and just thought about it for a couple of seconds. And that's not the kind of thing you can do without having played and thought about the set and built a lot of familiarity. Like I know that the people at Wizards, when they're talking about like designing a set for limited, they kind of like have this idea about which cards are content for most players and then which cards are adding a little something for people who are drafting the set 10, 50 times, whatever, where it's just like stuff where it's like, okay, the normal things that limited pushes you to and like the set themes 
and stuff like that that you need to build in to make sure that everyone has a good experience their first couple of drafts. That's like the main priority and what they're thinking about and building sets and stuff like that. But then they want to be sure to include a couple of like interesting build arounds and things that support more like corner cases that you can kind of like discover when you're going deep and doing a lot more drafts. And so this process starts over again every time there's a new format, right? So when you're trying to learn a new format, you know, you talked about the testing house at Madison and things like that. Do you have a process that you go through or is it just drafting and exploring? No, I I absolutely have a process that I think is not properly widely utilized that I think is really useful for just kind of getting a sense of what possibilities exist and what things look like before actually playing enough draft to like see all the archetypes. And that is once I've played enough to know how the cards play and have like a basic understanding of like what the archetypes look like, you know, what their mechanics and themes are and which cards in general are like strong enough in the colors to want to go in every deck and stuff like that. And also just like, you know, get a good sense for like which decks want tricks, which tricks are good. Like once the basics are covered, which I think is after like the first weekend of drafting, I like to, for each color pair slash archetype that I'm interested in, go through and build roughly like a 17 card all common Highlander deck. There are a couple of like ways that you can make the process a little deeper or more interesting. You can say like, okay, I get like two copies of three commons, but I can only choose commons that no other archetype would choose to like also have in this deck. Maybe I can also get like two uncommons, but one of them has to be an uncommon that no one else would choose. And just like think about, you know, what commons I would choose and then as you like build that deck, a lot of it is uh, the values in the process rather than the results where you're like, okay, so I went through my first pass of all the things that I think are playable in this archetype. I figured out there are like five two drops that I wanted and one four drop that I wanted. So, uh, you know, if I'm actually building this deck, I'm going to build it with a curve. So I'm going to like not play, like I'm going to cut three of these, two or three of these two drops. And I guess maybe I'll play this like fringe four drop that, you know, in an actual draft, I'd be looking to avoid. I'd look to have two copies of the good four drop or round it out with an uncommon at four in the curve or something like that. And then remembering that process, even outside of what the final deck looked like, I know, okay, when I was building red white, there were just way more two drops than I needed and not very many four drops that I wanted. So now I know when I'm drafting that the premium four drop, I need to value a lot more highly than I would normally value four drops in a red white deck where I don't necessarily want a lot of them because I know the value of a replacement compared to, you know, the next best four drop or even just not having a four drop is a lot higher than what one might expect with this card. Similarly, I know that I can, you know, not necessarily prioritize the premium two drops if I think that the gap between the premium two drops and the replacement level two drops isn't that high, and I know that I'm going to get enough replacement level two drops to like have a good curve. Or you at least know, like, well, I never thought about cutting this two drop, so I guess that means that's what I think the most important one is to this archetype. Yeah, and you also see you know which cards go in a lot of archetypes and which cards uh, go in fewer archetypes, and so that can inform your like early picks about like, oh... You know, I think of this card as really good, but I think of it as really good because it's really good in blue-red specifically. And even though it like looks strong, it turns out that like the other blue decks don't want it very much. 
So maybe I should take it a little lower because I'll expect to get it later because no one else is going to want it. Or maybe I should take it lower because I should take a more flexible card where its flexibility just comes from more different people wanting it earlier. So you're essentially building singleton or near singleton limited decks with mostly commons. And then are you playing those out against each other to like see how cards match up? I think you can do that. But for me, since a lot of it is just about seeing what the archetypes look like, um, just in terms of like their strategy, and then uh, how much competition there is at various points in the curve and stuff like that. I have not actually played the decks. Um, Like I said, for me, a lot of the value is just in the process. I do think that if I played sealed more than I played draft, there would be a lot more value to playing out those decks or playing out similar decks. Um, I think for sealed, since so much of the focus is on bombs um, and just like how to interact with rares, you wouldn't want to actually just play all common decks against each other. But I do think that like if you play a lot of sealed, there's a lot of value specifically in learning how various archetypes play against each other to figure out like, oh, hey, you know, red green is basically always beating red black. So if I'm like playing against a red black opponent in sealed and feel outmatched with whatever my deck was, I should see if I can build just like a, you know, below average red green deck and maybe just like have a good matchup if I can understand like what, you know, factors are going into that and why the matchup is playing out this way and stuff like that. Note that I certainly was not choosing those color pairs for any reason, especially not in there. So it's just two random possible color <laughs> pairs one could be looking at and sealed. And so is this an individual process for you or do you do this with friends? Uh, depends on where I'm at and who's around and stuff. The process was actually largely developed by Justin Cohen, and we've done a lot of done it uh, together for a lot of sets. But he is living in Denver and not really playing Magic these days, so it's a process that I've taken to using with uh, whoever I happen to be working with since then. And so, is there after you've done that, is there a next step to figuring out the format for you? Playing a lot of games. Uh, <laughs> I mean, also just like having a lot of conversations with people. Um, you know, like. For Theros, I ran um, a limited class through, uh, like I advertised it on Twitter and ran it through my Discord, where I uh, just got a bunch of people on a call and talked through this exact process that I was uh, just describing. I talked through like what my build of all the decks looked like and how to do this process and all of that. And then I wrote an article for Star City about about basically the same thing, but focusing on slightly different elements than I had covered in my class. So for me, a lot of it is, you know, do it and then teach it to internalize it and then play to just test it out and get into the stuff I hadn't considered where I discover this, you know, Mardu control deck on the fly because I randomly experimented with the Birth of Miletus pick six here. I had the privilege of getting to walk through a draft with you early in the format and it felt like you were very ahead of the curve at least from the folks that i was talking to about you know i think you you started off with the venomous hierophant is three and a black three three death touch draw card i think you earlier than a lot of folks understood how self mill or cards going to the graveyard interacted with escape as a fraction of a card was that something that as soon as you saw escape you were like aha that's how that's going to work or did it take playing a few games first. Where did that idea come from for you? The very first draft that I did in this format um, was a week before the pre-release. I uh, had the pleasure and privilege of uh, helping um, Team Ultimate Guard prepare for the Team Series final, uh, which was a 
like heads up team draft. And so they were given a bunch of product the day that the spoiler was released, which was two days before uh, this tournament was going to happen and allowed to bring a couple extra people if they wanted. They brought only me to help just like learn the format to compete in this tournament. And so my first draft was a bunch of people. It was, you know, before anyone had time to really like sit down and study the spoiler because the spoiler had literally gone up a couple hours before we were drafting at most, maybe like roughly as we were drafting. So it was everyone's first time. And so I ended up getting like two Farika spawns, roughly like third, fourth pick pack one. So kind of like drafted around that. I was just like, this card looks really good. And so then just like playing out my first draft with playing against Escape for the first time and playing with two Farika spawns may have like skewed me toward overvaluing Escape, if anything. But that, I mean, provided context that I, going into my other drafts where I was like, okay, this mechanic is super strong. Maybe because actually just that card is super strong. Yeah. But that was my, you know, introduction to the format. And so it just put me in a mindset to really pay a lot of attention to escape from the beginning. And so you've talked a fair bit now about like teaching and coaching, and that's something that you offer to anyone that wants to book coaching sessions with you, right? What, what would a coaching session for draft look like from you? So, um, my coach, like after coaching on a remarkably wide range of topics, I've had people approach me to, you know, get help with anything magic or not. And, you know, some people ask me like, you know, what does a coaching session look like? Or, all right, I want to book a coaching session. What are we doing? And like, that's not how I operate. It's very much tailored to specifically what someone wants to learn. So if they say, I want to book a coaching session, what are we doing? I'll say like, well, what area of the game are you looking to improve? Or what skill are you looking to work on? Or what tournament are you looking to prepare for? Or I I need to know where you're at as a player to know what you need to learn. And even then I need to know like both where you're at and what you value, right? So I need to know what you already know and what you want to know. As for, well, it's a limited session. Okay, that narrows it down a lot, but I still need to know, are you looking to improve your drafting? Are you looking to improve your gameplay? If you're looking to improve your drafting, we're probably just going to walk through some drafts. Unless you're looking to improve your drafting on a kind of more big picture theoretical level, in which case we can, you know, talk through systems the way that I've been talking through this. And, you know, we can kind of do some of that like big picture meta level format analysis and then just like talk through like, okay, well, what is this, you know, process that I'm describing look like, or just like, okay, I get it, but I don't know that I'm confident in how to do it myself. And I think that, you know, like given that I said that it's the actual process that's valuable, it's easy for me to share my results, but it's much harder to like, or at least takes a lot longer to share the whole process. So there's less of that available publicly, right? So if you say, okay, that sounds like really interesting to me. I want to, you know, do more just like out of context, big picture meta-analysis. That's the thing that we could do with coaching. Or if you just say like, look, I think I have like the understanding I'm looking for in a format or whatever. I just need help like actually making picks and putting this into practice. Like, great, let's, you know, pull up draft sim or some arena drafts or however you prefer to do it and talk through some picks for people who want to focus on gameplay. You know, the easiest thing to do is just like, let's hop in some games and talk through some stuff while that's easiest and has been pretty productive for me in the past. I do think that it's possible to get, um, kind of like higher efficiency for people who are like, you know, look, I, I don't want to do a lot of coaching, but I want to try to learn as much as I can. I'm willing to like do my homework first. Another thing people can do is, 
when they're playing games on their own, take screenshots and or whatever you need to do to just like have a scenario to talk about and then just be like, okay, rather than just like playing a game and, you know, maybe my opponent gets mana screwed and we spend five minutes like winning a game where no decisions are made. Instead, let's uh, just like go decision point to decision point talk through like the context and the thought process of like these spots that I identified as particularly difficult or interesting. And so when you do these coaching sessions, especially, you know, since we're a limited podcast, are there things that keep coming up that are traps that people fall into? Like, do you have any sort of generic, you know, here's a level up that I see a lot in coaching sessions with limited players? No, I'm like, I I haven't done enough to be like, oh yeah, you know, 30 people all had this thing or whatever. Um, and like, I have coached several people in limited, but it's also, I mean, like it's been people who are looking to focus on really different things and just at very different points in their, you know, growth as limited players and stuff. I really think that the just general wisdom that I have to offer is not particularly, you know, unique or better informed by having done coaching sessions or anything. It's all the normal stuff. And so I think as a player, you're sort of known as being a multicolor, a brewer, even in limited, like if if we're talking about Pro Tour Dominaria, the deck you drafted was insanely cool, insanely sweet. Were you like, does it take any sort of bravery to commit to doing that? Like, I don't know if I'd have been brave enough to do that on the PT level. Yes, absolutely. Uh, (laughs) A lot like I play magic for fun. I don't have the competitive personality that most competitive magic players have. I have the success that I have as a result of just like a deep love of the game and a lot of experience and a lot of like practice and passion, genuinely figuring things out. I care about getting better. I care about learning. I care about developing a real and correct understanding of the format, which puts me in a very different space than a casual player. But at the same time, my focus is never, I like beating people. Winning is important. I hate losing. My focus is, I want to learn. I want to understand. I want to explore. And so drafts, even at a Grand Prix or Pro Tour level for me, are, you know, just a like great sandbox or just like, you know, perfect testing, studying, growing, learning experience where I get to play against people who are trying really hard and taking it really seriously. But I guess I'm not. (laughs) I mean, I'm taking learning seriously, but I'm not taking winning as seriously as they might be. So if I see like, oh, you know, I haven't done this before, but I'm pretty sure there's something here. Like Modern Horizons is a format that You know, I ended up with a really unique take on where I was, by the end of it, hard forcing a five color control deck that I literally never saw a single person draft unless I had like explained it to them in advance. And getting there started with this process uh, that I talked about, about like building out all the different decks that exist in the format and going through, like I ran a kind of like coaching session slash limited meeting, basically uh, it was kind of like the uh, precursor to the Discord classes that I did. I basically got a bunch of friends in Seattle who were going to be playing in this. And I was like, okay, you guys aren't pros, but uh, you're friends of mine. I want to see you do well in this Grand Prix. I had already played GPDC by then, I think. Maybe not. I don't remember the order of those events, but I had already put a lot of thought into the format. I want to just like do a limited meeting the way that I do with like other pros in a testing house or whatever we're doing before a pro tour go over the set. Um, I want to just like, you know, teach all of you about what I've learned in this set, get your feedback and stuff, but 
mostly this is going to be, you know, me sharing what I've learned and showing you what decks exist and stuff like that. So got people together, went through the archetypes, talked through like, these are the cards that are particularly valuable here. This is what they're doing. These are the cards that fit. These are the cards that don't fit in the colors and stuff like that. After doing that process, I later discovered, oh, there's this thing that probably blue green can be doing that like prioritizes like splice. I like my first thoughts were, okay, this is an Everdream deck that can use like Everdream Weather the Storm uh, to build this, you know, gain a bunch of life, draw a bunch of cards thing. And then if you have stream of thought, you can loop that. And so doing like stream of thought, whether the storm ever dream, I'm like, okay, I think there's a deck here. There was a lot of stuff I didn't know about it. Like I thought that Spore Frog was maybe like a relevant part of this and that Spore Frog would be included in your loops. And you just get to the point where you were like Spore Frogging every turn. I didn't know like how much to like value snow and astrolabe for fixing specifically how much to splash how much to like use like the o4 mill crab there, there were just a lot of questions i had about it but i knew that there was potentially something in this space so at the grand prix in dc so i was preparing with emma and autumn for that pro tour and actually had a conversation with matt frando and some other people in the car on the way from new york to dc about how this kind of blue-green deck was possible. So then the morning of the Grand Prix, I like sketched up like, okay, here's the common version of this deck, but I think you can only do this if you get an Everdream. And I like sent those thoughts to MN Autumn. And then my first draft, I like first or second pick an Everdream. And I'm like, okay, let's do it. Like, let's, you know, <laughs> see if this like deck that I think might exist can work. And I just like drafted that in my first uh, draft day two of the Grand Prix. And I knew that I didn't know what this deck was supposed to look like. I know, knew it was purely theoretical, but I also knew that like people wouldn't be ready for it. And if it was good, it could be really sweet. And so I just did it. And it did some really powerful things. I won some games in really compelling fashion, but I also, you know, from what I know now, I'm sure I drafted it horribly. There was a lot of stuff I just like didn't understand about the archetype yet. But I'm just willing to like take that kind of risk and try out new stuff just like as I see it and think about it on the fly. And it doesn't really matter to me what the stakes are. Yeah, what better stage to just test a brew in limited than day two of a Grand Prix? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's incredible. All right, I think that's a great place to wrap us up. Sam, thank you so much for coming on. This was a blast having you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Is there anywhere that people can find you? Places, you know, you write, Twitter, things like that? Yeah, all kinds of places. I write a weekly article um, on Star City Games. Uh, It usually goes up on Wednesdays. Um, That is uh, premium, but I think that uh, at this point, we articles uh, get like open to people who don't even have premium after like a week or something. So you can check my content there, uh, premium, if you're looking to you know stay current. But these days, with uh, magic events being canceled, we're doing a lot more uh, just kind of you know less like up to the minute prepare for this weekend's tournaments, more kind of just like big picture, random, interesting stuff. I wrote an article uh, two weeks ago, I think, about my time at wizards last week about um just kind of like advice for brewing decks and constructed so you know even if you're not a premium subscriber i recommend just kind of like going back and checking some of that stuff out if you're interested in like uh my content in general i think that's 
been, you know, I've had some recent articles that explore a space that a lot of magic articles don't usually touch on. And then I have a Twitter at Samuel H. Black and then a Discord server challenging assumptions. There's a public, a permanent public invite to that Discord free for anyone to join that you can find in my Twitter bio. On that server, I... Uh, try to post a like new constructed brew in whatever format every day. At this point, I have missed a couple of days. You know, we're pretty deep into. I'm looking forward to another second. Yes, we're <laughs> waiting for Ikoria. We're waiting for Ikoria. Yeah, <laughs> but you know, certainly, you know, you want to be uh, if you have any interest in you know off the wall or unique constructed ideas. When Ikoria comes out, you definitely want to be in there. Totally free to get wide variety of new brews, good discussion about stuff. I also post, you know, there's a limited channel. I post uh, a lot of my like decks. There's a lot of a lot of other people in there talking about limited, posting their decks, getting feedback and stuff like that. Obviously, as we talked about, I also offer coaching, which uh, you can message me on Twitter or Discord uh, for that. And I will also, almost completely sure, be offering classes. I don't know if I'll be doing live classes or just audio recordings, likely both. Those will be available. I'll certainly tweet about them, but that'll mostly be run through my Discord. So if you're interested in basically the results of my kind of like big picture analysis of Ikoria through uh, kind of like the systems that I talked about here today, follow and watch for that stuff that should be coming out basically right after we have the full set. Yeah. And I will say a quick, quick plug for your coaching. You and I have done a coaching session. It wasn't MTG focused, but I, I, I had never booked a coaching session with anyone before doing that. And it was super easy to set up. You were very personable, very approachable, very knowledgeable. It was a blast and I cannot recommend you highly enough. Thank you. I appreciate that. All right. That's a great place to take us home. Thank you as always to Salty Pretzels for our intro and outro music. Make sure you give it a listen. You can check me and Ben out on Twitch and Twitter. I'm at twitch.tv slash Lord Tupperware. Ben is at twitch.tv slash Mr. Metronome. Mr. is spelled out. We're both under those same usernames on Twitter. And you can tweet at the podcast at Lords of Limited. If you've got any feedback about the show or any questions, please shoot us an email at lordsoflimited at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. And we'll catch you next week for another episode of Lords of Limited. Thanks, everybody. See you later. doing uh one ben and i did each one of them and oh my god that's not how you talk okay <laughs> we also want to shout out the people who ran the pods me and ben each took one of the pods the helmet oh my god <laughs> never mind the show's canceled we're done <laughs>